Last episode, we cautioned against replacing reality with a mental model. This week, we push this admonition further into the territory of abductive reasoning. We share why everyone, especially executives, can benefit from solution conjecture. We also explain the difference between executive coaches and yes people. To join the conversation, follow us on Twitter at GuildmasterC. Check out our blog at www.guildmasterconsulting.com blog, or subscribe to and comment on our YouTube channel. Simply search Guildmaster Consulting in quotes and you'll find us. Welcome to Somehow We Manage, the podcast for software engineering managers and their direct reports. I'm Dr. Ashley Graham. I'm John Graham. And today we're going to be talking about ego death. Ha, just kidding. We're going to be talking about um, two things, solution conjecture and coaching for executives. Now, why are these related? We'll get into that. I think the first thing that we really want to focus on is the learning process. It's something we talk a lot about. We, we covered it in our Banking On It podcast. Kind of this notion that education involves some kind of pain or vulnerability, <laughs> how that then impacts executives who are very much the exemplar for how their company learns or doesn't. So John, talk to me first about why solution conjecture is on your mind, why that phrase is coming to your mind in conversations you've been having with listeners. So a lot of people are very uh, fascinated and interested in the idea of data-driven this or data-driven that, data-driven management, mm -hmm. data-driven engineering, data-driven HR. The issue we have with a lot of data-driven stuff is that we don't have enough data. The data is sparse. Uh, is the technical term. Let's look at HR. HR might have turnover rates. It might have some employee surveys if they're lucky. And then it might just have kind of a general feel from the HR uh, members of, mm -hmm. you know, from small exit talk. Exit interviews? Or exit interviews, like small talk, water cooler talk. All these things come together and they don't paint a full picture. Um, usually in a data-driven, when we say data-driven, we're thinking inductive reasoning. I drop my phone every single time it falls to the ground i begin to make a theory that uh grab you know we'll call it gravity but some force is drawing my phone to the ground mm -hmm. that's as opposed to deductive reasoning where i start with first principles and then uh try to descend prove some, into yeah, descend yeah. into some conclusion the two can go hand in hand if i have a sure. theory of gravity i can deduce that other things will fall but i need to have that that theory first mm -hmm. we're in this area of abductive reasoning, where we have sparse data and many potential explanations for that data, many potential hypotheses. And we need to figure out a rigorous way to run through those hypotheses and figure out what is most likely. In, in deductive reasoning, we might introduce a hypothetical and we use, we use that technique to figure out, you know, the, the logical consequences of, um, if it were true that Socrates were a man, then it would also be true that Socrates would be mortal. Um, in abductive reasoning, I think a very equivalent technique is the solution conjecture. That's basically where you're like, let's just assume that this is the solution. What does that begin to reflect back upon the data? What does that What does that mean for our next steps? Mm -hmm. What and, paths does that open yes what paths does that open to us the idea of the solution conjecture is to find another way to learn and add to your sparse data in the most efficient way possible you may have data that's actually really consistent across your surveys and everything else on one point mm -hmm. but it's really open-ended on another so you might have a solution conjecture that just assumes some interpretation of that unknown mm. as a way to explore that unknown. Right. How well does this stick? Right. 
It's this is throwing spaghetti at a wall and seeing what sticks. Okay. So you want to figure out the most efficient way to throw spaghetti. Yeah, and how would you even begin to think about the efficient way when there's so many unknowns that you know it's, in the space? It's all guesses. You're trying to figure out what is the least amount of effort to maximize my potential learning, mm -hmm. and both of those are going to be estimates. So there's going to be error in those estimates as well. But you're going to be sitting around with with your team, with your group. You're going to be looking at potential steps forward, and you're going to be evaluating those steps forward in terms of what can we learn from this, and then how much effort will it take. Mm -hmm. I'm going to call it a logical fallacy in abductive okay. reasoning, and that's confusing a conjecture for the solution. Hmm. We, we have to remember that the solution conjecture is a technique to explore right. the space of possible solutions. Mm -hmm. um, now, there may be some momentum that can be built up. Uh, if we do this and it turns out to be correct, then we only have to do a little bit more to finish it. That's mm, fine. Sure. But you don't want to do the conjecture, get the data back. Mm -hmm. The data is telling you, oh, this isn't the right path, and then stick with it. Right. Well, maybe we should keep trying it. Yeah, exactly. This would be what I would call confusing the conjecture for the solution. There's probably a myriad of reasons for this. I think the two that stand out for me would be... Uh, you know, some sort of getting too personally involved with the solution ego. Mm -hmm. And then the sunk cost fallacy. Sure. And sunk cost fallacy, for those who aren't familiar. It's it's why you hang on to a loser. It's like, <laughs> no, it's like if you <laughs> no. have a loser stock, if you have a loser Got stock, it. it's like <laughs> you're, uh, no, 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 it'll bounce back, you know. Yeah. It's still good. Um, it's still it's good. good. It's still good uh, because you have associated the losses with that that stock if you're investing, mm -hmm. and if you sell, you're recognizing waste or recognizing your failures. So you mm. don't sell, and that makes it worse because you know it could continue to fall. This this happens all the time. Maybe you make a large purchase decision. You buy a car. You realize you got a lemon. You don't really want to acknowledge that you got a lemon, and so you you hang on to it a little longer than you should. So they sound related in, in some cases. The investment can be your personal That's ego. True. Yeah, right? absolutely. Um, or it could be money. But either way, it's it's a admittance that what you've invested overvalued or you've overestimated something or overvalued something that really should be devalued or has proven to be inefficient or I don't know. They I, just seem very related to me. I agree. I think I think you're onto something. I would imagine anybody who gets stuck in the solution conjecture, uh, confusing the solution for the conjecture would have some combination of like, but we put in all this effort. Mm -hmm. Certainly, you know, if we just finish this out, we'll get something out of it. That mm -hmm. would be the sunk cost. Mm -hmm. And um, no, I, you know, I really thought a lot about this. What would this reflect on me if this mm -hmm. were wrong? It was my effort. It's not yeah. just some like unit of effort. It's me. It's, yeah. it's what I put into it, yeah. right? Um, it's hard to separate out unless you're like a chicken and pig situation where yeah. <laughs> you're like not personally on the line yeah. as a chicken. Okay. Okay. So you're saying that basically people cut off or they forget that they're doing conjecture work, that they're yeah. doing hypothesis work, that they're experimenting. Because at some point in the experiment, you get invested in your hypothesis and you want it to be right. Yeah. Because you've taken all these steps. Uh, we don't have a large enough audience among cardiologists for me to get any hate mail over this. But what comes it. up <laughs> what comes up to me is I, I think his name was Ansel Keys. Mm, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he, he pushed the diet heart hypothesis that mm -hmm. saturated fat caused heart disease. Mm -hmm. And you can see some of the early research. And there was the, I think, the Seven Nation study, which 
I'll just go ahead and say preposterous today to have seven data points and then draw a line and say, look. <laughs> look at my regression. Yeah, look at my regression. But he was a very dominating personality. A lot yeah. of people would say that. And, and you'll this was definitely a, an issue of ego. Hmm. And a common saying is science moves, uh, you know, at one dead scientist at a time. And we really didn't get out from under the saturated fat causes heart disease uh, hypothesis until basically... He was gone and, you know, his top lieutenants were gone, too. And now we have a much more complex view of certain mm -hmm. kinds of cholesterol in certain times and certain genetic factors. But all that kind of exploded after we got out from under that bad solution conjecture. Mm -hmm. Now, was he wrong to have proposed it? No, of course not. We need, you know, there's all kinds of things to investigate. Well, I mean, it, it kind of the, the consequences of that were like fat was bad, but sugars are fine. Yeah. And so actually that probably contributed to some sure. heart disease. Now, I, so, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, and it was this, I'm trying to remember something similar with like the Mediterranean diet. It's like, oh, well, all these scientists happen to be at a conference in the Mediterranean. And suddenly when they're talking about diet... You know, it's like, oh, well, wouldn't it be nice if everyone could eat like we are at this conference? <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, I know that there was a little more research than that, but there was a there was a conjecture, right? It, yeah. it would have been fine to say, like, huh, these people are living longer in this part of the world. Must be this wonderful diet that we're enjoying at this conference. Let's test that instead of, like, just putting that conjecture out as the solution for people. Yeah. And I understand, I mean, not to digress too much, the, the randomized trials and diet is really hard. Sure. So it's yeah, yeah, it's yeah. slow. It's slow and painful to try and investigate these things. And, you know, we can have a whole podcast on uh, <laughs> confusing the map for the territory because there's a yeah. lot of diets that will lower your cholesterol, but not end up lowering your heart disease risk. Mm. So mm. when we confuse the, you know, endpoint for the, I guess, I, I don't remember the term, but basically the the subjugate endpoint, mm. uh, we're making a hypothesis right. there, not unlike yeah. OKRs. Uh, we're making a hypothesis between the key result and the objective, and we need to acknowledge that that may be wrong. Yeah, that's a really good point, because sometimes key results, you know, they feel good because you you need them in order to, like, to be able to assess that what you're doing is correct, yeah. right? Yeah. So they're like the measurement. But what you're saying is that the measurement itself is a kind of hypothesis because you might actually have to change what you measure and why. Yes. As hard as diet is in randomized control ti uh, trials for diet, how much harder is software engineering? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, there's so many possible paths and ways that you can do things. Same with management. I mean, there is a limited set of, like, ethical paths. But when you're embarking as a leader, an executive of a new company, or um, you're stepping into a company that's been around, but you're trying to make your way there as a leader, there are unknowns. And there's a lot of territory to explore. And how can you as an executive, not confuse the map with the endpoint or with with the destination, I guess. And to get back to a term we mentioned earlier, the Certainly, the executives suffer from sunk costs like the rest of us, but we got to focus on the ego aspect because being an executive, whether at a large company or small, is incredibly lonely. And there's a lot on the line and you've a lot of you on the line. There's very little that you can do that you don't feel personally responsible for. Now, different people, you know, have different amounts of kind of intrinsic ego issues, but even the best people are going to wrap themselves up in a business that they founded or that they're currently running. Mm -hmm. And it's it's impossible 
not to. That being said, not only are there some emotional impacts to the individual, right, that need to be taken into account, and you need to protect yourself and build boundaries, and and we can even talk about Ansel Keys again. If the evidence was there enough that we should try a low-saturated fat diet, and, and we try it, and more people die, that's bad, unsuccessful, mm-hmm. but that's not murder, right? Hmm. It only becomes, I don't want to call it murder, but it only becomes bad in when you insist in spite of the data. Right. Now, those those people after that point did not have to die with the bad diet mm. advice. You can make a bunch of bad decisions as a leader, and that's you shouldn't feel like you're a terrible person if... If you're learning from it, right? If you're learning from it. The issue that happens at senior leaders is because you're so isolated, mm. and even your colleagues sometimes you're fighting with, mm. and it's so lonely that it is so tempting to just find anyone, anyone who will listen to you and just say you're on the right track. That feels so good. Here's the problem. Oh, uh, what are you going to say? Well, no, I mean, I was just thinking so much, you know, in my line of work, so much of the transformative nature of a social worker or a psychiatrist or psychologist or counselor is that validation. Like if you can be an empathetic ear and support someone in what they're seeing and feeling, like that's when work can begin. It wouldn't help for me to come in as a social worker and be like, no, you're, that's wrong. Your cognitive bias is this, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. that's not like psychoeducation only, it doesn't really help. You've got to start from a place of empathy and saying, yes, yes, I can see why you would, why you would feel that way or think that way. So, I mean, leaders need that, right? To have, to begin to do the work of transformation and even learning from mistakes. They need that foundation of validation. Yeah. But you're saying that it can only be a, a foundation. There has to be some moment when a person can get more than a yes man, I guess. <laughs> more than, well, it, like there's a yeah, difference exactly. between validating someone no, exactly. and let's, let's supporting someone that. and, and being a yes man. Yeah, no, and let's talk about that. That's the, that's the danger I was alluding to. Okay. If you... Basically, take whatever you can get. You're uh, stressed. You're feeling a lot of pain. Uh, a direct subordinate comes to you. They listen. They understand. They say you. they know you have it hard. Um, that's not necessarily a good thing because the risk is you get that yes man or yes woman, yes person. <laughs> that's dangerous for a few reasons. One, again, they can have the best of intentions. Sure. When somebody greatly respect somebody else and they see that person uh, in psychological pain, they want to help. And so they'll they'll offer a lot of empathy and say, no, you're doing the right thing. Don't worry about it. You know, you're so great. They'll build you up. And they just don't want to see you suffer because it's causing them to suffer because they respect you so much. On the flip side, if they don't have the best of intentions, these are all avenues to definitely get your ear. They can come in, listen to every all your gripes and complaints, pack them away uh, and and be that person who's always there, just happens to be at your side when you're making big big decisions. Well, it develops trust. Yeah, it develops trust, but it can't. that trust can be abused exactly. in some situations. Right, right. And when you're talking about a large organization where you're always going to have some people inside, right, one out of 20 people, roughly, is going to be Machiavellian enough to try and manipulate their way to the top. That's not a large organization. If your organization's over 20 people, you've got somebody scheming to get to the top already. Hmm. Uh, so, and they're going to find their way to your office and they're going to know how to build trust. So this isn't like some random rare event. 
Hmm. Uh, but again, I'm not trying to assume bad intent, even if you have the right. best people at the top. Doesn't matter. You, yeah. And you're building that <laughs> yeah. trust. They are not equipped to help you, and they are not equipped to push you either. This is why I would say coaching is incredibly important for executives, because you can get someone who will be that ear, who will not use anything you tell them against you or against anybody else in the organization because they aren't in the organization. Right. They're right? a neutral third they party. They are a neutral third party who can sit more objectively and tell you when you're wrong. A direct report is not going to be able to tell you when you're wrong. A direct report isn't going to be able to feel you out to see what your mood is to tell you that you're wrong, right? You need to be in a good place to be like, geez, was I wrong here? And have somebody say like, I think you could have done better right. in these ways. Personally, I'm thinking you've had some really, uh, some of my favorite direct reports that you've had are <laughs> people who would be like, you're, you're fucking wrong. <laughs> like, yeah. like they, you have no lack of people who would call truth to power on teams where you've operated. Like you said, though, that even though you can get people like that, especially in software engineering, who have that critical thinking and enough to say that solution's dumb, you still may not have people who who can feel you out and know exactly everything that you're going through as a manager to know yeah. when the right time for some of that feedback would be. Yeah, exactly. Um, they don't know the, the pressures you're under necessarily. Okay, so you're saying that that neutral third party is important. What about for people who are skeptical that a neutral third party could actually help? Like if, if they don't know exactly what the company is going through or like... You know, um, I've I've had people, listeners come to me and say, like, look, I've I've sought some kind of coach and they're trying to advise me in my career or decisions I'm making, but they don't know enough about my company culture to realize what I'm going through. What what would you say to them? What would make your coaching model different? Well, let's get back to abductive reasoning. Let's talk okay. about product design. Yeah. Um, a coaching plan is a product. Yeah. And coaching itself is a very bespoke product. We can have models and we do have a lot to draw from, mm -hmm. and that's that's intellectual capital. That's how we can do it better or cheaper than everybody else. But any particular model is going to have to be tailored to the individual. Any plans going to have to be tailored to the individual. And the product design process, it always starts with empathy. Let's get that. I mean, in product, it's surveys and measurements and everything else. But in coaching, it's let's see where you are. What problems are you facing? And we're going to have some solution conjectures. I might recommend, oh, try this, and it may not work. In a lot of cases, it's not going to work, but we're going to learn something from it. That's the kind of coaching you, that I think is effective rather than any prescribed. Let, I mean, let's talk about agile coaching. I can come in and run Scrum for you, sure, but you may not need exactly Scrum right now. Mm -hmm. There's a whole bunch of different techniques and tactics you can use in project management. And one may be hitting your your bottleneck more than something else. And frankly, what we just need is somebody to run a retrospective. That's a piece of Scrum. Mm -hmm. And it's a piece of a lot of systems. Right. But to be able to tailor and focus on that one part as soon as possible and know here are all the things that might go wrong. Here's some potential solutions. Let's keep trying until we find something. That's the abductive approach to coaching. Right. That helps you get a very tailored product mm -hmm. and that tailored product what that means to you is more effective faster yeah uh, than somebody who's like let's talk about your vision journey for your career 
Now, knowing what your career goals are, are is important, but maybe you just want help being more persuasive right now. Yeah. Yeah. And that will change. And that's the important thing about this agile approach to coaching or executive coaching is that the problems change so fast. Yes. <laughs> and if, so if you feel like this big proposal as a coach and like, I'm going to be doing this program with you and yeah. and we're going to meet these goals each week. It's like, well, that's that's great. But like, waterfall coaching. Yeah, waterfall yeah. coaching, exactly. So you're not practicing what you preach in another sense. If we're effective, you should have different problems, right? Right. We should right. be moving past the past problems <laughs> yeah. and have discovered new ones. Yeah. As you scaled yourself. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm talk I'm thinking about situations in which someone is having to constantly react because they're underwater. And so the problems are changing all the time because that there's a new hot potato introduced yeah. each each day. Um, and so being able to be responsive in your coaching yeah. is helpful. It's similar with, with social work. I mean, you're you're always trying to discern from the client what their priorities are for that given week and what how motivated they are for a given yeah. tactic that you want to address. So you're never coming in there with like some grand plan. Uh, yeah. It's a very collaborative effort, just like any good learning or experimenting would be. And so, no, this, this is really helpful. I mean, you're not wanting to import some solution. We you're, don't know what solution you need. Exactly. Yet. There's a whole that, bunch of ways we can put one together. Right, right. So you're wanting to bring to the table a solution conjecture. Yeah. Rather than some kind of prepackaged. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That That's really helpful um, because we've talked a little bit about coaching before. I was trying to think of it in this new space of executive coaching where it can be a little bit lonelier and more unknowns as you kind of architect a strategy or deal with a, a large organizational problem. Is there anything else that you wanted to share in terms of how this solution conjecture approach influences your tech? On executive. I mean, you said it best in terms of it's an agile approach, it's an abductive approach. All these things are kind of pointing to the same small, tiny little increments and in measuring, mm -hmm. whether it's design thinking or agile. And back to even our solution conjecture and getting your ego tied up mm -hmm. and sunk costs. Now, there's things to try and help get over that when it does happen, but there's also things to prep for. And that's keep the conjectures as small as possible. That way you have less time to get your ego wrapped up into it. And that's kind of the same thing with coaching. I'm just like, let's take tiny little tasks. And each week or each month is going to be a little bit of homework on what is what you're facing now. Mm -hmm. You have the energy mm -hmm. to fight right now. And the now. motivation. If you got energy and motivation, that means it's cheap. So yeah. let's buy, you know, buy low, sell high. <laughs> That's put super well. I love that. That really helps, like you said, to take the ego out of it because the investment is small. Yeah. Um, whether it's your time or yourself. Okay. Well, thank you very much for this conversation. It's been helpful to me. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to our blog and follow us wherever you listen and podcast. You can search us on YouTube at Gilmaster Consulting to hear our podcast there. We are on a mission to make management better one lesson at a time. Most people, they don't hate their jobs. They hate their managers and we can fix that. So if you do find any of this compelling, please share, help us out get this message out there. And part of our mission is to support a community of engineers and managers that are learning from one another. So please, if you're on YouTube, comment below. Tell us about a time when you or someone on your team confused the conjecture for the solution. Thanks.